Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, when ADH TV was created less than a year ago, the intention was to, as Alan Jones says, give a voice to the voiceless. Since I joined a few months ago, I've been surprised and encouraged by how many people I meet who feel frustrated that Australia is indeed being changed without much input from ordinary citizens. There's a growing realisation that Australia is no longer the country we once loved. We didn't change, but somehow the country did. This has manifested in a variety of ways. For example, almost 15 years ago, then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd stood up in our national parliament and apologised to the stolen generations. Speaking on our behalf, he said, We apologise especially for the removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families, their communities and their country. For the pain, suffering and hurt of these stolen generations, their descendants and for their families left behind, we say sorry. There's a growing cohort of Australians who get enormous moral satisfaction from this kind of thing casting their own country as a brutally genocidal colony. Other people like you and I don't because we know Australian, Australia isn't that bad. No country's perfect, but we're better than most. When Indigenous children were removed from their families in the past, it wasn't an act of genocide. On the contrary, it was an act of compassion. As many first-hand accounts describe, full-blood Aborigines were mistreating, abandoning or even killing half-caste kids. So we, guided by the Christian values that came ashore with the first fleet, rescued them and offered them a safer opportunity to share in our good fortune. This sort of compassion continues today, uncontroversially, in the form of foster parents caring for kids unlucky enough to be born to dysfunctional parents. But we only do that for white kids these days. Indigenous kids can't be rescued from violence, sexual abuse and exposure to drugs because that would be racist. We went along with Rudd's little bit of theatre in 2008 in the vain hope that the apology would be accepted and the nation could finally move forward as one but the apology was never accepted, and in many ways, we've gone backwards. The Aboriginal lobby is now louder and angrier than ever. New Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's solution is to divide us according to race with the so-called Indigenous voice to Parliament, 
which will never work. You and I know this, but Albo doesn't. Why is that? I wish I knew the answer. The same applies to the same-sex marriage plebiscite in 2017. Many people voted yes, hoping it would shut the sexual identity lobby up. But they too have continued to get louder, angrier, and more demanding. And now, as a result, confused kids are undergoing irreversible transgender surgery, sometimes without the consent of their parents. You and I know that one day these kids will be suing hospitals and doctors and perhaps even the politicians who encourage them for the damage caused by these treatments and surgical procedures. But preventing them happening in the first place? Few people in power care. The latest change to our nation's fabric is the National Anti-Corruption Commission, which, if it passes the federal parliament, is more or less a duplication of the corruption watch watchdogs already in place in every state. Albo, the Prime Minister, has put aside $262 million of your money for this Star Chamber's first four years of operation. Its brief is alarmingly vague and open to interpretation. It will be free to define corruption any way it likes, but it won't be restricted to corruption, whatever that is. It will also be free to investigate potential corruption. Seriously, would you do business with the federal government with a watchdog, watchdog like that looking over your shoulder? Would you join the public service or run for office? I wouldn't. The potential for a vexatious investigation tying you up for years and ruining your reputation is just too high. The commission will also perform, quote, prevention and education functions, unquote. Education functions? If the government needs to teach its own staff how not to be corrupt, wouldn't it be easier just to hire people who are more trustworthy? Albo would like you to think that the NACC is just a natural extension of our legal and cultural heritage, but it's absolutely not. There is no presumption of innocence and no clear definition of the conduct it will investigate. Ever since the convicts and sailors straggled ashore off the first fleet 234 years ago, Australians have understood that the rule of law is simple. You know the law, you break it, you pay the price. It's a bit of a cliche, but it is neatly represented in this classic scene from Crocodile Dundee. What's for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife. That's a knife. No, 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 not that bit. The bit that follows it. Just kids having fun. Just kids having fun. In other words, no harm done, no crime committed. Nothing to get upset about. This used to be such a, a fundamental part of our culture that we made jokes about it. But that's not how Albo and his government see Australia these days. To them, Australian public servants and politicians are so untrustworthy that our legal system, 
based on centuries of legislation and case law, simply isn't up to the job of reining them in. Instead, we need these star chambers to ensure we don't misbehave in ways not even they can define. You have to ask yourself, are Albo and his Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, living in the same country as you and I? Well, if Victorian Liberal leader Matthew Guy won't take up the fight against the incumbent state government led by Dan Andrews, one of the worst political leaders in Australian history, then my next guest will. He's Lyle Shelton, who was appointed National Director of the Family First Party in May and has moved to Melbourne to run a campaign to get up to five MPs into the state's upper house. This isn't the only front Lyle is fighting on at the moment. In a blog in 2020, he described drag queens who, who were performing for kids at a Brisbane City library as, quote, dangerous role models, unquote, and was hauled before the state's human rights star chamber for committing vilification. He was ordered to attend mediation and refused. His case will now be heard again, this time in front of a civil and administrative tribunal next month. Shelton will call as a witness, Kira Bell of Britain, who started transitioning from a girl to a boy as a confused 15 year old, which included a double mastectomy. The case will essentially decide, Lyle Shelton's case I should say, will essentially decide whether he or any Queenslander is free to comment on the harmful effects of the transgender lobby. And we will keep you informed with updates as they happen on that case. But for now, Shelton is focused on trying to restore a minimum of sanity to the Victorian parliament by convincing voters to install some of his family first MPs in the upper house. And I'm pleased to say he joins me now. Lyle, welcome. Thanks very much, Fred. Great to be with you. First, Lyle, your primary opponent in this election is the incumbent government, which you say is destroying family values in Australia, in, sorry, in Victoria. Have you reached out to the coalition to see if you can join forces in any way? Well, Fred, we've talked to a number of the good people that are running in the Liberal Party, but the, the trouble is uh, those voices are, are drowned out and the Liberal Party as a group unit under Matthew Guy is almost as woke as Daniel Andrews. And particularly when it comes to these transgender issues that you were just mentioning in your intro, uh, both of them are on a unity ticket in keeping Dan Andrews' terrible conversion therapy laws, so-called conversion therapy laws, which makes it even a crime for parents to, to try and talk their children out of doing what Kira Bell did, and that is go off to the gender clinic to have puberty blockers or eventually get their, their breasts or other uh, irreversible surgery done. Uh, so both Dan Andrews and Matthew Guy are on a unity ticket in keeping this terrible, harmful gender fluid law, uh, which stops parents even and counsellors and pastors and imams even talking sense into a child. It's so obvious that those laws are wrong and we, the, the people behind them are causing so much damage to kids. How can Matthew Guy not see this as an, as an opportunity to make a point of difference uh, as a politician against an opponent, but also just on a moral ground that they're so wrong. Why is he ignoring it? I think, Fred, the problem is conservative politicians uh, throughout the Western world, including here in Victoria, are afraid of the woke 
uh, elites. Uh, the LGBTIQA plus lobby is very, very powerful. The government's funded a, a, a pride centre here in St Kilda for them, taxpayer funded. Um, Matthew Guy, he's even bowing to this and, and you know, he's announced as an election promise that he's going to fund two taxpayer-funded lawyers at the Pride Centre to, to go after people who disagree with LGBTIQA plus ideology, whether it's on gender or marriage or whatever. So they're afraid, Fred, and that's the problem. There's just no courage uh, in the Liberal or the National Party, uh, apart from a few individuals, but they've been made voices in the wilderness because the party uh, hierarchy come down hard on anyone who, who speaks out against these things. And so Matthew Guy is on a unity ticket with Dan Andrews on some of the most extreme laws that you'd see in the world. Well, it wasn't long ago that those laws would have been laughed out of Australia. But what you're essentially saying, Lyle, is that there is no freedom of speech within the Liberal Party. Is that right? Well, look, that, that's my take on it. Um, look, uh, we've got some wonderful candidates that we've now put in the, in the field uh, and we've been going around to different um, forums, uh, talking to community groups, uh, community leaders, and you, you'll have the odd good Liberal candidate get up and, and they'll say all the sort of things that you and I believe in and that most sensible mainstream Australians would believe in, but, of course, their party doesn't fight for the values that that a handful of these individual Liberals are fighting for. We saw it at CPAC as well. You and I were there and we saw, you know, the likes of Matt Canavan and Alex Antic and, and, and others, um, you know, fighting for all the, the good conservative causes. But when it comes to the party itself, they're made to shut up. And that's the same with the, the good candidates here in Victoria. They're a minority, but uh, the party itself is in lockstep with Dan Andrews when it comes to um, th this conversion therapy laws, you know, criminalising parents, uh, and also um, the freedom of religion laws, which uh, stop Christian schools, um, even Muslim schools and churches and mosques from employing staff who share yeah. their ethos. Let, uh, let's that get freedom to, has well, gone as well. Well, well. well, we'll get to freedom of religion in a minute because I, that is a major topic. But just, just before we move on the sort of bigger picture, what's your reading of the mood in Victoria right now? Look, I think um, it seems to me, and look, I'm an outsider. I've been down here for the last couple of months working on our campaign, but um, it seems to me there's almost like a Stockholm syndrome here. Uh, the sense is that Dan Andrews is going to get voted back in. I think he'll lose a bit of skin. I think there'll be a move, uh, a swing away from him. I think the Liberals will also lose some skin. I, th I think that teal phenomenon is here as well in the, in the blue ribbon inner city seats that, that were once uh, Liberal heartland. So I, I think um, Libs are going to hurt. Uh, Dan Andrews is going to lose some skin, but I think he's going to scrape back in. And the real question will be uh, what will be the shape of the upper house, which is where Family First uh, is concentrating. If we can get enough good conservative-minded people in the upper house, we could perhaps block some of the damage over the next four years. What is the, you're involved in a pivotal case in Queensland, as I explained earlier, um, regarding freedom of speech and the transgender lobby, but Andrews is also at the cutting edge of this debate, having passed legislation enabling kids to help kids, uh, to uh, enable, enabling schools to help kids change gender without the knowledge of their parents. Do many Victorians see this for what it is, which I think is child abuse? No, there's, um, there seems to be sadly very little awareness uh, of what's going on. And, and I think that's a function of the fact that the Liberal Party uh, won't have the fight. Uh, I mean, I've got, got here with me the printout from the Victorian Education Department website, which rightly, as you just said, it, it uh, tells 
uh, teachers uh, to hide from parents uh, a child's gender transition, and not just from parents, but from medical practitioners. It, it says if a parent or or a medical practitioner doesn't agree, the the school should hide that from them. It's unbelievable. It's all there in black and white. And if the Liberals wanted to run on something which was of concern to most mainstream parents, uh, it would be an election winner. But because the debate's not being had, uh, there's no discussion, the media don't take him on, people are just basically unaware, apart from, you know, those of us who follow and track these issues. Well, the uh, what's the overall um, offering from Family First, though? I mean, you're, you're saying, you know, who's going to stop, the, you know, the encroachment of political correctness on your family and your personal life? But in a nutshell, what's Family First offering the punters? We're saying by being a bold voice in the upper house, if we can be there in a position where we can perhaps with others hold the balance of power, we're saying who will protect your family from the threat of radical political correctness? That's the question voters have got to focus on. And um, the answer to that question is not Dan Andrews and it's not Matthew Guy. Yeah. Yeah, true. Well, let's turn to the issue of Andrew Thorburn now, who was virtually sacked as CEO of the Essendon Football Club for being Christian. What's your policy, Lyle, or Family First policy to prevent this sort of thing happening again? Yeah, well, we've got to see uh, strong religious protection laws uh, come into place. And um, we've put out a media release today supporting uh, Muslim, Christian and Jewish leaders, which have, in the wake of Andrew Thorburn, calling on Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to provide Commonwealth overrides of Dan Andrews' state laws uh, which stop freedom of speech and, and freedom of religion. And um, to have a statement of um, belief clause put in a federal uh, religious discrimination bill that would then uh, make it illegal for someone like Andrew Thorburn to be sacked because he would be expressing a reasonable statement of belief. Now, we agree with these Muslim, Christian and Jewish leaders uh, that this sort of mechanism is needed in law uh, to help uh, protect uh, the next Andrew Thorburn. Are you getting are you getting the feeling that's quite a groundswell across various religious faiths? Absolutely. The the Andrew Thorburn issue, which uh, occurred two weeks ago when Essendon sacked him after 23 hours in the job, simply because he was on the board of a church that expressed orthodox Christian views on marriage and the pro-life position, uh, that has sent shockwaves through the Family First base. Uh, it sent shockwaves through the Christian and Muslim communities, as evidenced by the comments in the paper today. But we're picking this up on the ground as well. Uh, I've spoken to the head of the um, Imams Board here in Victoria, and uh, he said their people are sick of being um, required to go to diversity training where they're taught things, uh, to use his words, that are against their religion. And so people are, are sitting in workplaces surrounded by colleagues with rainbow lanyards and email signature blocks with uh, all sorts of incredible pronouns like Z, they, his, her, whatever. And, and, and people are feeling afraid because of their, uh, their religious and, and mainstream beliefs. Uh, Lyle, some of these people came to Australia because we're a free country and they, they see this kind of stuff. They must think we're bonkers. Just getting back, though, to Dan Andrews' record, the defining uh, element of his most recent term, his current term, is of course the lockdown. Now it, it seems obvious now that the lockdowns were unnecessary, the virus wasn't as lethal as we were told, and the vaccines were not as effective as we were told. 
Uh, Andrews isn't alone, but he was certainly the most uh, enthusiastic and authoritarian about following this narrative. What are the odds of him making some sort of mea culpa during this election campaign? <laughs> I think the odds of that, uh, Fred, are about the same as Xi Jinping uh, <laughs> making a mea culpa. I mean, Dan Andrews, uh, he took his um, playbook right out of the CCP's handbook. And uh, look, uh, Family First believes there needs to be a royal commission into what has gone on so that there can be a reckoning and that we learn the lesson so that this never happens again. Well, as I've said a couple of times before, a Royal Commission is just the start. I think we need criminal trials. Not, not that Dan Andrews has broken any laws that we know of yet, but there, there, certainly uh, there needs to be some sort of recompense in the future. Now, finally, before you go, Lyle, in a new book, Australian musician Nick Cave, hmm. I'm sure you've got all his albums, has described Christianity <laughs> and conservatism as being at the heart of his creativity. Did you ever think you'd be in the same camp as Nick Cave, Lyle? No, I, I didn't, um, uh, Fred. Uh, I, I mean, I appreciate his music, and uh, but uh, it, it is um, it's it's rich with biblical lyrics. Um, the, the guy obviously reads the Bible deeply, and uh, this was said in the article that you reference in the Australian. Uh, but you look at songs like Mercy Seat, um, deeply theological concepts, uh, Into Your Arms, uh, talks about uh, an interventionist God. And, and um, yeah, he, he sort of melds, uh, obviously, his love and romance um, uh, songs with uh, the spiritual and the transcendent. And he talks about the transcendent and says how much that uh, Jesus Christ and the Bible have influenced his life and that he is a conservative. So <laughs> that's a big <laughs> admission. Um, well, we're the, we're, the, we're the new rebels, Lyle, and we're the more, you know, the left always talks about diversity. But uh, if, if, if I'm in the same camp as you and Nick Cave, I think, I think we've got diversity covered, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think it just goes to show, you know, the left, they just assume that uh, the arts community is on their side and, and that we're all, uh, you know, that, that you and I are somehow weirdos or, or whatever, but it's not the case. And uh, people do have diverse views and it's great to see someone from the entertainment industry out and proud as a conservative. Excellent. Out and proud. Maybe, maybe Dan Andrews can, uh, can build a pride centre in St Kilda for conservatives. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> Lyle Shelton, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much, Fred. That's Family First National Director and Warrior for Traditional Values, Lyle Shelton. Well, the most common perception of China these days is that it is a ruthless dictatorship with a growing military and ambitions to expand its influence around the world, either by stealth or force. Its government routinely stamps out freedom of speech, enslaves ethnic minorities, and has built complex systems to enforce social compliance on everyone else. But there's another way to look at China, says ABC international affairs analyst Stan Grant. And it might not surprise you what shapes this sophisticated new perspective. In this analysis piece posted on the ABC website yesterday, he says, quote, it is not possible to understand China without understanding race and racism, unquote. Really, Stan? Does anyone else get the feeling that in Stan's world, you could replace China in that sentence with just about anything and he'd be totally cool with it? 
It's not possible to understand the price of bread at Woolworths without understanding racism. It's not possible to understand Barry Humphrey's jokes or the deforestation of the Amazon jungle or the colour of the opals found at Cooper Pedy without understanding race and racism. Grant goes on, quote, specifically without understanding whiteness, unquote. All right, didn't see that coming. It's not about the racism of the Chinese, which is blatant and well-documented, but the evils of European colonialism. Grant goes on to say that the Chinese have endured centuries of humiliation at the hands of quote-unquote white powers. He says Europeans and Americans have for 300 years exported violence, committed genocide, stolen land, and made it all legal. Europeans and Americans have also exported freedom, prosperity, individualism, equality before the law and democracy. But that's a triviality in Stan's view. Then he gets to his weirdest, most confusing point. He paraphrases a book published in 2011 by a Princeton academic that found Chinese were, quote, actually described as white, unquote, by the early Europeans who interacted with them. But then in the 18th century, as whiteness became supposedly entwined with colonialism, the Chinese began to, quote, darken, unquote, in the eyes of Europeans. They darkened? You'd think Stan Grant would be the last person who should talk about people darkening. Here he is as a young reporter for Channel 7 almost 30 years ago. And here he is three years ago as photographed by The Guardian as a crusading defender of Aboriginal culture. Anyway, Grant's ultimate point is that, quote, in some ways, Xi's China may represent the end of whiteness, except that Chinese Communist Party itself mirrors whiteness, unquote. Sure it does, Stan. If it did, if China did mirror whiteness, there would be the Chinese equivalent of Stan Grant on state-funded television whining about how oppressive and racist the government is. As Stan knows only too well, only white liberal countries allow that. Well, if you're looking for a speaker to inspire a group of high school or university graduates, or you just want someone to explain how things went so catastrophically pear-shaped as a result of the COVID pandemic, then you won't believe who is now available to fill that speaking role. I'll get to that in a minute, but first, Let's talk about the Australian Constitution. My next guest, legal academic James Allen, says Australia is lucky to be one of the few nations in the world to have a written constitution, but no Bill of Rights. A Bill of Rights, he says, overrides the elected legislature in ways that a written constitution could never envisage. But, he says, a written constitution is not all it's cracked up to be either. I might be paraphrasing him unfairly here, but I think he says it's often not worth the paper it's written on. He says the empir empirical evidence is overwhelming that judges, such as the ones sitting on our, on our high court in Australia, will find ways of interpreting it and changing it to suit the times and their own political or social proclivities. This is what he calls in his new book, The Age of Foolishness, living constitutionalism. We shouldn't kid ourselves that just because the constitution is written down, it is written in stone. Let's get him in to discuss it. James, welcome. 
Fred, you almost made it sound like an interesting pickup line. Let's talk about the Australian Constitution. <laughs> I tend to use it to put people to sleep. But, uh, we can go either way on that. Well, let, let's see how the viewers respond tonight. Did I paraphrase you correctly? A constitution's not worth the paper it's written on? Well, it depends. I mean, I think we have a good one. It's also, Australia's is, I think, the fourth or fifth oldest written constitution in the world. People forget they have one of the oldest democracies, one of the oldest written constitutions. They're not the same because... Britain and New Zealand don't have written constitutions. Here's the beauty of our constitution. They basically left everything, all the key social policy calls to later generations through parliamentary sovereignty. I think that's preferable to a bunch of uh, constitution makers locking things in, which is what you do effectively with the Bill of Rights. You lock, you lock the voters into the views of a bunch of unelected judges. I mean, there's no God-given answer to the extent you're supposed to have uh, scope for free speech or freedom of religion. If you uh, entrench that in the Constitution, it's just today's judges. When you buy a Bill of Rights, you buy the views of the lawyerly caste. Fifty years ago, they were, they were more conservative than the average voter. Today, the lawyerly caste is way, way to the left of the median voter. Well, you say that we must choose between what you call ancestor worship, which is faith in the wisdom of the people who wrote the constitution and faith in an aristocratic cast of ex-lawyers. Which one do you go, which side do you fall on, James? Yeah, those are the only two choices because if you, if you interpret a written text in accord with the intended meaning of the people who made it and you're 230 years down the road, you know, you're locked into their views. If you, if you sever the link from the people who, uh, crafted and drafted it, then you're effectively locked in by what a majority of today's top judges think. Uh, Britain and New Zealand don't have that problem because they've, they've uh, gone with an unwritten uh, setup. In Australia, we tried to create a bit of that because sprinkled throughout our constitution is until the parliament otherwise provides. So what we're locked in by is parliamentary sovereignty. I think that's great. The problem in Australia is the judges are making stuff up. In love, they made up this uh, nobody ever has seen it before entitlement for non-citizen people claiming Aboriginal ancestry not to be able to be deported. That's not in our constitution. And they made up the implied freedom and they made up a whole bunch of sort of well, cases that I think is pretty terrible. Let, let's let's elaborate on that case that you just referred to. This is, this is the case of the of the criminal, if I'm not mistaken, who claims some sort of Aboriginal ancestry but is not an Australian citizen and therefore, according to the High Court, can't be deported. Is that correct? Yeah, so Kiwis can come over from New Zealand and they have a right to live and work. Uh, but if they are convicted of a criminal offence, we often deport them back to New Zealand. And this gentleman, after a release from prison, claimed Aboriginal status. And, you know, um, four to three, our High Court says, well, there's is this new category of person that the federal government can't deport based on these well-known constitutional concepts such as otherness. I mean, it was just a panoply of woke verbiage and all. And three out of the four of the majority judges were appointed by the coalition, by George Brandis. It just shows you how bad our coalition governments are. They get in and they appoint, you know, non-conservatives to everything, the ABC, the Human Rights Commission, 
the high court. I mean, really, you wonder what the point is sometimes of voting for these people. But the people who who wrote the constitution, they didn't they didn't envisage the sort of culture we're living in now. Isn't there a isn't there an argument for the fact that the high court is simply applying to constitutional law the the cultural mores of today? Well, it's not their job, you know. Keeping pace with changing mores is the job of the elected parliament. If you prefer to be governed by judges and some sort of juristocracy, I, I don't think that would be a very attractive setup, but go ahead and move somewhere that does that. Um, so, A, they, there's no legitimate authority for them to do that. So I, I just think it was a shocking decision. Now, obviously, in a federal system, somebody has to play umpire and decide between the states and the center. That's their That was supposed to be their main job, but they always side with the center. I exaggerate slightly. We have the most dysfunctional federal system in the democratic world because our top judges have ruined a nicely balanced federal setup by always siding with the center. Again, I I like the analogy that you make at one point in the book that uh, you often play pickup basketball where there's no uh, referee or umpire and all the players uh, impose the rules themselves voluntarily. Why can't that apply in constitutional matters? Well, we know that when stakes get high, you have to have a referee and umpire, but you assume that the referee walks onto the court thinking he or she's going to apply the rules, not that, hey, I can make up a new game because <laughs> I don't think the game you're playing is socially just because, you know, you've separated the men and the women and I'm some kind of woke referee. I want the men to be playing, put a skirt on and go and play with the women, you know. That's not the job of a, of an unelected uh, judge. So, but anyway, thanks for the plug on my book. Appreciate <laughs> oh, no, that. Well, that's all right. Well, I just I don't want to move off it just yet because uh, I just want to talk about freedom of speech because it's a particularly uh, important topic to to all of us. I mean, you you repeatedly repeatedly refer to the implied freedom of political speech in the Australian Constitution which was found by the High Court uh, under a very intense um, magnifying glass in the mid-1990s. Now, free speech today is diminishing in Australia. I think it's pretty uh, conclusive uh, to argue that. Why can't we have that written in, our, in some sort of Bill of Rights, James? Well, again, you buy the attitudes of the governing juristocracy with the Bill of Rights. So if you actually go and look at the The implied freedoms are not a personal right. They're a limit on what Parliament can do related broadly to elections, although they've extended it to um, prisoners, prisoner voting, things like that. But here's the thing. If you go and look at since the 1992 case, ACTV, there have only been, I think, five times that the High Court has struck down legislation. Every single one of those post-1992 times. Which party's legislation do you think the judges struck down? I'll give you a clue. It sounds a lot like liberal. <laughs> you know, they, so since the original piece, since the original discovery, and as you're, and you're right, you know, it, was, it must have been written in invisible ink that only the, the judges could see. It was the most implausible reasoning ever. So again, I'm, all, I'm the most pro-free speech guy working in the university. But you're also, your job as a judge is to be a sincere and honest when it comes to, you know, seeing what the written legal text means. And that's a more important value than sort of making stuff up at the point of application. And anyway, it turns out that every time they strike down a piece of legislation since 1992, the first case was labor legislation. It's always liberal legislation. 
Now that, you know, you can go out and flip a coin five times and you have a, what, one in 32 chance of that happening. Yeah. But, you know, I wouldn't go to Vegas on those odds. <laughs> How do we ensure um, free speech is, is sacrosanct in Australia, though, James? What's the solution? But you vote for politicians who believe in it. You vote for, you know, I really like Tony Abbott, but it was a really bad call to pull the Section 18C repeal. And the party base is still mad. And even if the Senate would have blocked it, make them block it. And even if half your own party room won't support it, make them not support it. You yeah. know, whoever gave him that advice, I don't know if it was Peter Cridlin, whoever it was, to pull that was a terrible call. You know, you've gone to the election, say you're going to do it, then you try your hardest to do it. Yeah, good point. Okay, let's talk about the rapidly disintegrating prime ministership of Liz Truss in Britain. It's interesting that two strong female true conservatives, Georgia Maloney in Italy and Daniel Smith in Alberta, Canada, have just risen to power, but Liz Truss is losing her grip on power before she's even had a chance to seize it. What makes Truss so weak, do you think? Well, you know, you give people the benefit of the doubt. She was, always, she was a Remainer and she at one point was a Liberal Democrat, but she, she, she won the two-party runoff. So the Brits have a system where the MPs nominate two of their fellow MPs. They don't get to pick leader. And then the party base chooses between them. So on the list of sort of conservative home membership preferences, Liz Trust was their fourth pick. And I think Rishi, Rishi Sunak was their eighth pick. So these weren't people who would have won if you'd asked the membership. But between the two of them, they, they opted for trust because she said she was going to be a conservative. She's going to cut spending. And, you know, if you're going to do that, and I think her program was pretty good. If you look at what tax cuts would have cost compared to what they spent on COVID, what Boris Johnson and the establishment spent on COVID. If you put a bar chart, you can't even see the cost of the tax cuts. But as soon as they came in, you know, the establishment class, the markets, everyone went crazy. She should have written it out. She caved immediately. She sold herself like as though she were a, a latter-day Thatcher. Thatcher stood up to 1,200 economists who signed a letter saying her, her program wouldn't work. Liz Truss gets criticism for one day. Members of her own party threaten to vote her out. Make them throw, make them vote you out. Now she's a com she's completely neutered. You know, in today's world, I guess we can even say she's completely emasculated. <laughs> yeah, well, the but what. The electorate has unrealistic expectations these days. I mean, as soon as she rose to power, she, it was expected she was going to put a cap on, on power bills and cut taxes. These are the things that make you popular in the electorate, but it doesn't take you long to realise that they're actually impractical. Well, again, you know, I, come from a long, I come from a family of economists, and my view is the Keynesian orthodoxy, which is basically easy money, uh, so printing money, high tax, high spending, high regulation, that's the sort of orthodox economic system we see throughout the Western world. It's failing and add high immigration. So, you know, they can say GDP is going up, but your GDP per person is, is level or going down. And this is the orthodox Keynesian view right now. Print money, spend high tax, high regulation and keep pouring in the people. And you can say GDP is going up. But individuals are getting worse off. And here's an irony. We keep letting in all sorts of people. And then we're worried about global warming per country. So global warming, if you're really worried about it, I'm not particularly, but if you are, you would think you wouldn't, you know, since we're measuring it by country, you wouldn't be running the world's highest uh, per capita immigration. So, again, the whole thing's bizarre. Liz Trust, they were, you know, the whole system was tottering. 
And uh, by standing up against this orthodox view, she got hammered and she didn't have the sort of wherewithal to stand up against this. So she's come across as weak. I think she's finished. I mean, personally, I think we need Nigel Farage to start a party again. Well, she might be finished, but I can't. I'd say that the Conservatives aren't necessarily finished because the Labor opposition look look the worse option anyway. Appalling. Yeah, but here so, it is, Fred. She went. She went and put Jeremy Hunt in as the new treasurer. Jeremy Hunt was the sort of architect of the brutal lockdown policy. I wouldn't vote for Jeremy Hunt if my life depended on it. The man, when he ran for the leadership, he came in bottom. I think he was the first guy to go off in the sort of serial round. Nobody made Jeremy Hunt. Nobody in, nobody on the right side of politics wants Jeremy Hunt near anything. And Liz Truss made him, you know, Chancellor of the Exchequer, effectively treasurer. So I don't know what kind of judgment she's exercising. She's just completely, she's caved in on every front. It's, it's you have to have a bit of despair. You know, right yeah. now, the best outcome, I suppose, is if Boris comes back. Yeah. Well, it sounds like they've got similar, similar choices that we have here in Australia. It's only... Alberta and Italy that have have decent choices. Now, quickly before you go, let's talk about the new speaker at the Ross on the roster at the Worldwide Speakers Group. It's none other than our former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. His bio on their website says he will use his leadership during the pandemic to explain how to he will explain how to manage a crisis from his experience as a leader during the during the pandemic. He will also explain how to identify the right problems to solve, how to get the best out of experts, how to take people with you in a crisis, how to measure success, and this is my favourite one, how to exercise accountability. James, did the secretive national cabinet led by Scott Morrison exercise accountability for its draconian decisions? Well, I didn't know he'd moved into stand-up comedy. I mean, his leadership through, the, his leadership through COVID was appalling. He was appalling. I mean, the, the idea that people would pay, I, basically, if you put a nod in front of every verb that he did, that's what that would be. That would give you a pretty good idea. <laughs> so if people, if people look, we have, the, we have one of the highest excess death rates right now. We have a higher excess, cumulative excess death rate than Sweden. Everything we did was wrong. We've, we've spent like drunken sailors. We've blown out the economy. Kids have lost two years of school. You never make that up. And Jay Bhattacharya said, if you look at the data, when kids miss two years of school, you're looking at huge numbers of people having shorter lives. So all these people who think we handled the, the uh, COVID well are just deluded, in my view. The data is totally against that. And the idea that Scott Morrison, probably the worst prime minister in Australia's history on the right side of politics, he's even worse than Turnbull, possibly, which is hard to believe. The idea that he's going to give us tips. This is the man who doesn't understand the presumption of innocence. You know, he'll throw you under the bus in the first minute. Some left-wing group makes an allegation. So the sooner, if anyone wants to pay money to hear Scott Morrison speak, good, because that's money coming out of the pocket of someone we don't really want to have too much. Yeah, yeah. imagine paying to hear his explanation of the past two years. He really should stand up in front of the Australian people and no, tell, but I explain it for that he's free. Changed his, I, hear, I heard that he changed his pronouns to they and them. Because when you've got five secret ministries, you have to have they and them as your pronouns. <laughs> oh, good on you, James. James, thanks so much for your time. All right, take care, Fred. That's Queensland law professor James Allen, whose new book, The Age of Foolishness, is available at all the usual online bookstores. And just before I go, 
Here's a tragic reminder of what happens when politicians convince the public that only one policy matters above everything else. Two workers died in separate mining accidents in Western Australia last week. Mining's tough, dangerous work, but it shouldn't be fatal, especially at a time when profit margins are so huge. The circumstances of each accident have not been published, so it's inappropriate to form an opinion about them now. But they come at a time, as the West Australian newspaper pointed out on Friday, soon after COVID lockdowns put a handbrake on mine safety inspections. Mine visits from safety inspectors were down 22% last financial year from the year before. In the Pilbara, where one of the fatal accidents occurred last week, the safety inspection visits were down 60%. Like a lot of government and private sector employees, the mine safety inspectors presumably spent the lockdown sitting at home, pulling in a JobKeeper salary, even though the mine workers themselves kept working. West Australian Premier Mark McGowan even boasted in April that WA Resources kept the nation going throughout the pandemic. He said at the time, quote, Throughout the past two years, my government has always been focused on saving lives and protecting jobs, unquote. And that, quote, Western Australia carried the nation through the pandemic, unquote. Well, it's now debatable if the state's lockdown saved any lives at all. But the reduction in mine safety visits arguably cost two lives last week. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow night at 8pm for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine. Good night.